Amen. His love is marvelous, church. It's going to be so good to be in his presence, beholding the king, singing to him face to face. Amen. If you could, please open your Bibles to Ephesians chapter 4. We are, as a church, working our way through the letter to the Ephesians. And we're going to be focused in our time this morning on verses 7 through 10 of chapter 4. Uh, But just for the sake of context, we will read chapter 4, verses 1 through 16 together. Uh, If you grab the Bible that's in front of you under the chair, it should be on page 977. Ephesians chapter 4. Verses 1 through 16, the word of God reads, I therefore, and this is the Apostle Paul speaking, I therefore, a prisoner for the Lord, urge you to walk in a manner worthy of the calling to which you have been called, with all humility and gentleness, with patience, bearing with one another in love eager to maintain the unity of the spirit and the bond of peace. There is one body and one spirit, just as you were called to one hope that belongs to your call. One Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father of all, who is over all and through all and in all. But grace was given to each one of us according to the measure of Christ's gift. Therefore, it says, when he ascended on high, he led a host of captives and he gave gifts to men. In saying he ascended, what does he mean but that he had also descended into the lower regions, the earth? He who descended is the one who also ascended far above all the heavens that he might fill all things. And he gave the apostles, the prophets, the evangelists, the shepherds, and teachers to equip the saints for the work of ministry, for the building up of the body of Christ, until we all attain to the unity of the faith and of the knowledge of the Son of God, to mature manhood, to the measure of the stature of the fullness of Christ, so that we may no longer be children, tossed to and fro by the waves and carried about by every wind of doctrine, by human cunning, by craftiness and deceitful schemes. Rather, speaking the truth in love, we are to grow up in every way into him who is the head, into Christ from whom the whole body, joined and held together by every joint with which it is equipped, when each part is working properly, makes the body grow so that it builds itself up in love. Let's pray. Father in heaven, we give thanks to you for this morning. We give thanks that your grace and mercies are new this morning. 
And we give thanks that you are a mighty God. We give thanks, Lord, that you are a loving God. A loving God who has sent his son to be our savior. To live a perfect life. To die on a cross in our place. To take the punishment we deserve. And to conquer sin, death, and demons, and the devil. All our enemies, which we have no strength on our own, O Lord, to defeat. Father, you sent your son to put all of them under your feet and ours. And so we're thankful, God. We're thankful. We pray, Lord, that you would bless our time as we read your word. Help us to understand it. Help it to help us, Lord. We pray, Father, that as we look at the context of spiritual gifts, that it would help us, Lord, to more fully appreciate them and diligently labor with them, all for your glory and the building up of your body. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. As a father of children, one of the most frustrating things that I experience is when I do something very nice for my children, when I work very hard to express my love and give them something that is good and good for them, and I want them to enjoy it, and so I give them a gift only for moments later, that gift giving becomes the occasion for immediate strife and fighting. Whether it's a bowl of popcorn, I went to that store, or I sent my wife to that store. <laughs> she came back with that pre-made popcorn. I, it sat a minute and 30 seconds. I worked so hard to get it prepared for my children, but then I give it to my children. It's a wonderful gift to my children, and immediately... You're taking too much. My, let me have it. Let me hold it. No, I want to hold the bowl, right? She's like, guys, please, can you just enjoy the gift I gave you? You guys been there? And you know when you have kids and you, it's just, oh, it's always like as soon as you're rebuking them, you're being rebuked yourself, right? Because you can just imagine, you know, just a few things you know, we just got a gift, and now me and my wife are in disagreement on how we should use that gift, right? So we're fighting about it. You look, you see it in your kids, it can happen to you, it happens to us all. We see what God gives, and then we covet, and we fight, and we quarrel, and we want it, and, and we are upset, and it can, what was supposed to be good was supposed to bring us together, what we were supposed to enjoy was supposed to be for our benefit, was supposed to be for our strengthening, was supposed to be for our unity, all of a sudden can rip us apart. Not it, but our response to it, and our mishandling of it. This gift was to be a blessing, to be received with joy. And now, because of our sin, we've become proud, we've become arrogant, we've become hostile, we've become, you know, we start attacking, fists are getting thrown, right? Uh, we slander, we gossip, we manipulate, we intimidate. We do all these things and we create strife and we create problems when we ruin unity. And that same thing happens with spiritual gifts as well. And look no further than the church of Corinth, right? Read through and see the different, many different issues that they had. Paul talks about uh, in Corinth, 
uh, to the Corinthians, he, he says, he speaks about how they have divisions and quarrels over, over teachers. He says that some say, I follow Apollos, and I follow Paul, or I follow Cephas, or I follow Christ. And Paul's like, is Christ divided? Was Paul crucified for you? Or were you baptized into the name of Paul? And then later in chapter 3, verse 21, when he talks about, uh, he says, So let no one boast in men, for all things are yours, whether Paul or Apollos or Cephas or the world or life or death or present or the future, all are yours, and you are Christ, and Christ is God's. Even gifts, you guys, spiritual gifts, can be a cause or, or an occasion for us to swell with pride, us to look down on others, us to fight and quarrel in the church. And this is exactly the opposite reason why they're given. They're given for our strengthening. They're given for our maturity. They're given for our growth. They're given so that we can be stable and united together, laboring in unity to build each other up, strengthen each other, and advance the gospel. And so it's important we understand the context of spiritual gifts, I believe, because it's the context of spiritual gifts that I think helps us to be humble. It helps us to understand that we are united. And it helps us to labor to see the church built up. You see, when you fight over something, you show a total disregard for the context of the situation that you've just received a gift. And in, in a lot of cases, that gift can be way more significant than popcorn. Think of the gift of your freedom. Think of the gift of people giving, laying down their lives so that you can be free, so you could freely worship only to come together and fight and quarrel and complain and grumble. And when you do that, it's like, do you not realize do you not realize what, what, what has gone before this to make this all possible? You're totally forgetting it all. It shows by the way that you're acting. So the context is crucial. The context is so important. And I believe it's that which Paul wants to underscore before he starts mentioning all these gifts. He wants to place them in their proper context. I think a context easily overlooked and underappreciated. And I hope that you will see that too. But I hope that you will see that as we look at verses 7 through 10 of chapter 4, we'll see the proper context for understanding spiritual gifts so that we will labor in humility and unity for the maturity of the body of Christ. That's the main idea. I say labor in here, sort of the applicational thrust of this message, that we labor in humility because that's exactly what we're called to do. If you look at verse 12, these gifts are to equip the saints for the work. For the work. That's the labor part. The work of ministry for the building up of the body 
of Christ. And so there is work to do, and the gifts that we have are specifically given to us so that we will work. And then this idea of humility, Paul has already hit on in verse 2 when he says, walk worthy of the man, uh, in a manner worthy of the calling to which you've been called with all humility. And then also this mention of unity in verse 3, eager to maintain the unity of the Spirit and the bond of peace. And, and this is all for so that the body can grow and attain maturity. As he says in verse 13, until we all attain the unity of faith and to mature manhood to the measure of the stature of the fullness of Christ. I don't know about you, but I don't want to be a little child tossed to and fro. I want to see and be a part of a church that is strong and stable and united, who bears with each other in love, who serves each other and sees the gifts that God has given them uh, as wonderful things, who are not coveting each other's gifts, but appreciating all of those gifts and all the people that God gives them to, working together to build up and bring the body of Christ to maturity. And I think it's three questions that will help us to see the proper context for understanding spiritual gifts that will guide us through our time this morning. The first is, who gives these gifts? Who gives these gifts? The second, how are these gifts given? And the third, why is he the one who is giving these gifts? Okay? Who gives these gifts? How are these gifts given? And why is he the one who gives these gifts? And these will lead us, I think, to a proper understanding of the context of spiritual gifts so that we will, uh, with humility and and unity, labor for the maturity of the body of Christ. So first, who gives these gifts? Paul wants believers to know, uh, following off of this wonderful statement of maintaining unity and then the unity that, that God has already created and the fact that there's one body, one spirit, one hope, one Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father over all. He's gonna add to that one more thing and that's one giver, dispenser, uh, apportioner of gifts. So who are you? Who am I? to swell with pride, to look down on someone else, to not appreciate what the the Lord Jesus Christ himself has given. Who is it that gives these gifts? These gifts come to us from the Lord Jesus Christ. They come to us from the Lord Jesus Christ. Look at verse 7. It says, But grace was given... To each one of us according to the measure of Christ's gift. We also know that Christ, the one who gave, since Christ is being spoken about, and then in verse 11 it says, and he gave the apostles and the prophets and the evangelists. So Christ is the one who is the giver of these gifts. That should humble us. It is the risen and exalted. Lord Jesus Christ, who has given grace to each and every single one of you. So we had all those statements of unity there, but now we get very individualistic. It's kind of corporate all together, but now there's something that that is given to every single individual, and that is grace. 
And the grace that Paul is talking about here is not the saving grace or, or forgiving grace, uh, although that was given too. But the grace that he's highlighting here is grace as empowerment to service. Grace as empowerment to service. So when Paul says, but grace was given to each one of us according to the measure of Christ's gift, it's speaking of the different ways that the Lord Jesus enables us by the power of his spirit to serve the body, to serve one another, to build each other up in love. Look at how Paul describes that as a uh, a gift back in chapter three, verse seven. He says, of this gospel, I was made a minister according to the gift of God's grace which was given me by the working of his power. And then he says it again in verse eight in chapter three. To me, though I am the very least of all the saints, this grace was given. What grace are you talking about? Are you talking about salvation? Uh, Well, he's already mentioned about that in chapter two and three, but this grace that he's talking about here is the grace to preach, he says, verse eight, to preach to the Gentiles the unsearchable riches of Christ. So this grace is his apostolic ministry. This grace is him being set apart as a preacher of the gospel. This grace is the power of the spirit at work in and through Paul to enable Paul to serve the body of Christ. Who gives these gifts? It is the Lord Jesus Christ. You could say it's from the Father, through the Son, by the Spirit. If you wanted to capture all the trying person's uh, involvement in this. Other passages highlight uh, the the, the Holy Spirit as the, the, the one who apportions gifts. Other passages also speak of the Father's role in, in gifts. And so here, Paul's highlighting Christ's role in the giving of spiritual gifts. And really, in the giving of spiritual gifts and the doing of all that God does, all three persons are always at work inseparably with one another to bring that action to completion. So who gives these gifts? Paul's highlighting Christ as the giver of this grace. And if Christ is the one that gives these gifts, who are we to look down on any one that Christ has given gifts to? Who are we to look down on what Christ has given to that person? Who are we to make light? Who are we to pull factions? Who are we to pull favorites? Who are we to, you know, create this favoritism and partiality? And I follow Paul and I follow Apollos. It's all yours. Did you forget You belong to Christ, they belong to Christ, you both belong to his body, and he's given this gift for the strengthening of his body. So whatever good thing they have is to strengthen the body of Christ to which you belong. So be thankful and praise him and appreciate those gifts. Commend those gifts, encourage those gifts. Thank God for those gifts. Thank the people for operating in those gifts keeps us humble. It keeps us united. It keeps us from pulling apart when we understand who gives these gifts. But it secondly leads to how are these gifts given? And it says here that the grace was given to each one of us according to the measure of Christ's gift. And essentially what this, what this means then is that not only is it Christ the one who gives the gifts, but Christ is deciding which gifts go to which people 
and the, the portionment, the measurement of that gift to those people. You might have two people who are gifted to teach, and one has a greater measure to teach than another, but they're both gifted, yet one is more gifted. You can have that. That, too, is what all, all attributed to Christ. Christ is the one who gives the gifts. Christ is the one who gives the measure of these grace to all of his, to all in each and every single member of his body. And so all of it is to be received, is to be rejoiced in, is to be appreciated. It is according to the measure of Christ's gift. In Romans chapter 12, we see gifts, speaks of gifts that differ according to the grace given to us. Says, let us, Paul says, let us use them. If prophecy in proportion to the faith, if service in our serving, the one who teaches and is teaching, the one who exhorts and his exhortation, the one who contributes in generosity, the one who leads with zeal, the one who does acts of mercy with cheerfulness. Peter also, he says, each of us has received a gift as we've received, uh, as each of us has received a gift, use it to serve one another as God's excuse me, as good stewards of God's varied grace. There's unity in the church. One Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father and all. But then there's also diversity of giftings to the church so that the church can work together and united, but yet in distinct and complementary ways to bring and build up the body of Christ and bring it to maturity. This is God's varied grace. Peter says, as each of us has received a gift, use it to serve one another as stewards of God's varied grace. Whoever speaks as one who speaks the oracles of God, whoever serves as one who serves by the strength that God supplies in order that in everything God may be glorified through Jesus Christ. So who gave these gifts? It's the Lord Jesus himself. Who did he give it to? Every single person who's a part of his body. Every single one of you who have put your faith in Jesus Christ have been given grace and empowerment by the Spirit for service of, of the body that they might grow and mature. And I think when we understand the context of that, it helps us to remain humble. It helps us to realize, just as, as, as Paul would ask the Corinthians, like, why do you boast in men? What do you have that you have not received? And if you received it, then why do you boast as though you did not receive it? You see, whatever your gift is, whatever the measurement, you know, the apportionment that Christ has given you of his grace in that gift, it's all of him. All the glory goes to him. It's none of you or me. It wasn't because we are great. It's all him, all the credit, all the honor, all the glory, all the thanksgiving goes to him. He did it. And he gave it as a gift of grace to us. And so you look around, you see this beautiful group of people with various gifts and apportionments and allotments. And they're all beautiful and wonderful and, and all from Christ. And we should appreciate them all. And that should cause us to labor humbly and also diligently for the maturity of the body of Christ. You're thinking here, Jeff, that's the fastest two points you've ever been through. But it is. Uh, point three, this one's longer. Why is he the one who gives these gifts? Why is he the one who gives these gifts? 
this is crucial for the context. And to boil it down to a sentence, it's because he ascended, it's because he descended. This, I think, is an insight into the easily overlooked background or context of spiritual gifts. Why is Christ the one who gives these gifts? Paul answers clearly, because he ascended and because he descended. Well, what does that mean? It means that Christ is the one who gives these gifts because he is the conquering king who defeated his enemies through his descent and ascent. Having conquered his enemies, he has ascended and taken his seat, and he's dividing the spoils of his victory by apportioning to us spiritual gifts. This is the context of spiritual gifts that Paul is talking about here, and they are why I titled my sermon, Gifts of War. Maybe you're just thinking, man, that sounds cool. Yeah, that sounds cool. I think that sounds cool. These are gifts of war. They're gifts that have been won for us. These are gifts that that someone bled and died so that we could have, and he rose and ascended, and he took his seat at the right hand of God so that we could have these. What a blessing. What a gift. Do you realize what he went through? Do you realize the depths and the heights of Christ so that we could have these gifts, so that he would be the one with all authority in heaven, on earth, and under the earth, who would dispense according to his sovereign will and wisdom, his grace to us. It's incredible. It's incredible. I think it's important for us to understand this, this context of spiritual gifts because it would humble us, pull us together, force us to thankfulness. It it, it stops our proud mouths. It motivates us to use those gifts for the building up of the body of Christ. So let's think first about Christ ascending. Paul mentions that one first. We see this in verse 8. It's repeated in verses 9 and verses 10. So we understand that the, the context of spiritual gifts that Paul's hitting on has primarily to do with the ascent and descent of Christ. But what do you mean by ascent and descent? I'm so glad you asked. Paul quotes Psalm 68, uh, Psalm 68, verse 18, and he says, after, so I'll just start in verse 7, but grace was given to each of us according to the measure of Christ's grace. Therefore, it says, when he ascended on high, he led a host of captives, and he gave gifts to men. Now, if you will go back and look at Psalm 68, Psalm 68 is a glorious psalm. Uh, it's also a gritty psalm. Because it's filled, it's drenched with war language, kings and armies and enemies and slaying and protecting and marching and dividing spoils and chariots and captives and the blood of enemies soaking the, the righteous' feet and the righteous' dogs licking up the blood. It's, I told you, gritty. But it's victorious. It's glorious and it's victorious. It depicts God as, as one who conquers his enemies, was one who then sets prisoners free, that then causes his people to erupt and, and, and to, to, to go about in a victory procession with tambourines and songs and dancing into the sanctuary of God as God ascends and takes his place on his throne and then shares his victory with his people by giving them gifts. 
It seems to be a pattern in this psalm that God comes down. He leads his people through the wilderness. He goes through. He conquers their enemies. He brings out prisoners. He fights the battle for them and wins. He ascends the hill. He's victorious, and he shares the plunder with his people. He descends. He goes before. He conquers. He ascends. He shares. We get to share in that. Paul is, I think, seeing Christ either as fulfilling the pattern that is set in this psalm or directly fulfilling something predicted. I have to admit, I struggled so hard this week to figure that out for you, but sometimes I don't. (laughs) So you should be encouraged. (laughs) But what is clear is that Paul sees Christ just as God did in Psalm 68, conquering his enemies, ascending. Paul explains the ascension for us. He says this is an ascent of Christ beyond all the heavens. So this is Christ going up into not just Mount Mount Zion in Jerusalem, but Mount Zion in the heavenly Jerusalem. And he does so after his descent, Paul says. On the day of Pentecost, Peter preached that Jesus was exalted at the right hand of God, and having received from the Father the promise of the Holy Spirit, he has poured out this that you yourselves are seeing and hearing. This ascent is Christ's ascent into heaven, his resurrection and his ascension, where the disciples got to see in the book of Acts, they're looking at him. They're looking at him go, and they see him go up just as he raised bodily, And they touched him and they ate with him and they knew he was truly alive. They could see him. They could touch him. They watched him physically, visibly ascend into heaven to the right hand of the Father. And the angels are like, hey, guys, what are you doing now? It's time to get going, you know. And they're like, still staring. What's going to happen? And he's like, he's going to come back just as you saw him go. Where did he go? He went to the right hand of the Father. He ascended after he was victorious. And we have, we have here, I think, what Paul's doing is speaking of, speaking of spiritual gifts as fitting that exact same pattern. When Christ subdued his enemies, he, he, rising from the dead, he ascended to the right hand of the Father and gave gifts to men. That's an important background context for spiritual gifts. Have you ever thought about that? Does it not help you appreciate them more? Realizing all that Christ went through. I think that this should absolutely humble us. He has done it all. He has ascended above all. He is seated at the right hand of the Father. He is our victorious King. And he is sharing, even showering us with grace. Thank you, Lord. So why is it that Christ gives these gifts? Because he's the one who ascended and is at the right hand of the Father. Do you know anyone else more qualified? (laughs) Do you know anyone else who who has conquered and overcome like he has? Do you you know anyone else who, who did that? I didn't think so. Christ is uniquely qualified. 
He is the only one to do this. But there's something that Paul wants to state as well and qualify that talk about his ascent implies a previous descent. Christ ascended, but Paul's point is he first descended. And we, we, we get this if you just think about it. If someone were to say, hey, I, I, I won the victory. You'd think, well, what victory? What do you mean? What victory? You can't win a victory unless there's a contest. You can't win a battle unless there's a battle. You can't be victorious unless you overcome and win in the conflict. You can't have a winner unless you've triumphed over the person who, you, who is the loser. So Paul says in verse 9, in saying he ascended, what does it mean but that he had also descended into the lower regions of the earth? So Paul's point here, why is it Jesus who gives these spiritual gifts? Because he is the one who ascended. And, and by the way, when we speak of him ascending, that obviously indicates that he first descended. Now, here's where we get to the juicy part. You guys get to all put your thinking caps on. What does it mean that Christ descended? What is Paul talking about here? The text reads in the ESV that Christ descended into the lower regions, comma, the earth. In the Greek, that's a genitive phrase, so it's lower regions of the earth, we, we, which uh, could be used appositionally to, to essentially be the way the ESV translation gives that. Uh, but according to this translation, the lower regions are the earth. The lower regions, that is the earth. So in this case, if, if that's what the text is saying, then Christ's descent is simply in his incarnation. The descent is from heaven to earth. Nothing more. Uh, so that's one of the main views that are, that are out there. Very popular. I'm not mad at you if you think that. Second one. Some people think that lower regions of the earth de describes his physical death, his physical body being put in a grave. Okay, so it's not necessarily the incarnation, but him descending to the lower regions uh, of the earth is speaking of his body being put in a grave. In other words, it's speaking of his physical death. And certainly Christ died physically. I got no problem with that. But I'm not sure that that's what's intended with this phrase, lower regions of the earth. Uh, a third view is lower regions of the earth is, is kind of taken in the first sense as well, that, that it's just speaking of the earth. The, if you were to have two regions in the world, heaven and earth, the lower region would be the earth. Uh, and so, but this view is a little bit different than just the incarnation view in that the descending is the descending of Christ by the Spirit on the day of Pentecost. That's become a more, a more uh, kind of popular view. Uh, but neither the incarnation view nor the Pentecost view uh, nor the view that, that the lower regions are just his physical death. I think, I think all of those are, for the most part, out of line with the traditional historical take on this. And that would be that the lower regions of the earth is speaking of a pla the place of the dead. 
the place of the dead. Also, you might read, if you're reading your Psalms, you hear all these references to Sheol, right? Uh, the place of the dead. Would, another name could, for it would be in Greek, Hades. Uh, or we could, it's referred to as the pit or the abyss or the sea. But what it refers to is not just a physical place that a physical corpse goes to, but a, a place where sp- human spirits go to after death. And so the descent to the lower regions of the earth, if the lower regions of the earth are Hades or Sheol or the pit or the abyss or the sea, speaks that Christ's human spirit descended to that spiritual realm. And I commend you to wrestle with this for yourselves, to think about this for yourselves. You be good Bereans uh, and search the scriptures to see whether these things are true. But let me just share with you briefly why I, uh, which view I think is strongest. I think the first view that the lower regions of the earth refers to the earth is unlikely um, because if, if you wanted to just speak about Christ's descent to the earth, you wouldn't have to say lower regions. You could already have the contrast between heaven and earth, and so you don't need to add that little uh, lower regions statement. Uh, so I think that, that, that that's potentially an indicator that something else is, is intended. Uh, furthermore, we... You know, in, in a lot of other places, when just the incarnation is highlighted or just the descent of Christ to the earth is highlighted, it just uses descent to earth. It doesn't say anything about lower regions. So that's definitely within the vocabulary uh, of the writers that they, that when they want to refer to just incarnation, just coming to earth of the Son of God, uh, they, they can just speak to coming to earth. They don't need to say the lower regions of the earth. The second view, I also uh, find unlikely um, that his descent into the lower regions is just his meaning that his physical body is being put in a grave. Uh, the, the reason for that is, is that I don't think it takes into account some of the other passages of Scripture that we have uh, that seem to indicate that Sheol and Hades is a real place that spirits go. Psalm 16, for example, when David is speaking prophetically, I believe in the first person of Christ. And he says, For you will not abandon my soul to Sheol, nor will you let your Holy One see corruption. You will make known to me the paths of life. In your presence there is fullness of joy. At your right hand are pleasures forevermore. The statement, You will not uh, abandon my soul to Sheol, nor will you let your Holy One see corruption, I think indicates that Christ's soul would be in Sheol, not that it would never go there, but that it would go there, but would not be left there for any long period of time that you could consider that as having been abandoned there. And in fact, taking it with the, coupled with the line that nor will you let your Holy One see corruption, I think we have good evidence to understand that his stay or visit in Sheol must be complete before the fourth day. Because according to the fourth day, generally corruption of the human flesh had begun. And so I think this necessitates a deliverance from Sheol before the fourth day. You will not abandon my soul to Sheol, nor will you let your Holy One see corruption. So I think the view that this is only talking about his physical body in a tomb, uh, while that's true, I don't think that that's what's being talked about in this passage. I think it's indicating more. The, the view about... Uh, uh, the lower regions of the earth and the descent of Christ being a descent to the earth by the power of the Spirit on the day of Pentecost. Um, 
I think that this view, unfortunately, gets the order wrong because it has an ascent, then a descent. And also, Paul says that the very one who ascended was the same one who, or the one who descended is the one who ascended far above all the heavens. And so it's the son who's being talked about in both of those, not the son and then the spirit on Pentecost. And so this leaves us with the last view that Jesus descended to the lower regions of the earth refers to Christ descending into Sheol or Hades. Christ's human body was put in the grave. His human spirit descended to the place where all human spirits go, the place of the dead, but would only be there three days, at which point he would burst forth out of Hades, break through death, because death could not hold him, and the gates of Hades would not prevail against him nor his church. And it's possible and has been the view of the majority throughout church history that Christ, that when Christ descended and he ascended, what Paul described as leading a host of captives, that this could be that he took the Old Testament righteous saints who were in Sheol with them up to heaven to enjoy the perfection of God's presence at the right hand of God with Christ. Christ having atoned for their sins could raise them and bring them with him into the heavenly places. Many have argued that Paul's view of the world is simply heaven and earth. And so regions of lower regions of the earth is just probably speaking about the earth. But if we grant that Paul wrote Ephesians and that he also wrote Philippians, then we remember that in Philippians 2, Paul says that Christ was obedient to the point of death, even death on the cross, right? So God highly exalted him and gave him the name above every name that every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and what? Under the earth. And every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. So if we're talking about the same author, then he's clearly seen there's some sort of lower region of the earth that's being talked about here. Moreover, when we look at Romans chapter 10, we have, we have another reference by the same author, the Apostle Paul, who speaks also in a parenthetical statement of Christ's ascent and his descent. And while I can't get into all the details of explaining this passage to you, the point remains that Paul uh, describes Christ's descent as into the abyss. So he says, for, and this is Romans 10, verse 5. He says, For Moses writes about the righteousness that is based on the law, that the person who does the commandments of God shall live by them. But the righteousness based on faith says, Do not say in your heart who will ascend into heaven, that is to bring Christ down, or who will descend into the abyss, that is to bring Christ up from the dead. But what does it say? The word is near you in your mouth and in your heart. The word of faith that we proclaim. That is, I'm going to give this to you, it's so good. If you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. So notice, though, that this descent is into the abyss. And that's another word for Hades or, or Sheol. Uh, on top of this, in 1 Peter chapter 3, uh, we have another passage. Maybe you guys are familiar with this. In 1 Peter chapter 3, verses 18 and 19, it says that Christ also suffered once for sins, the righteous for the unrighteous, that he might bring us to God, and then being put to death in the flesh, but made alive in the spirit, in which he went and proclaimed to the spirits in prison. 
John MacArthur says that Peter sheds light on the meaning of Paul's statement, descended into the lower parts of the earth. And then he, he quotes this, and then he offers the summary that a triumphant announcement of his victory over demons uh, took place even while they tried to hold him in death. And so uh, we could go to a lot more places. One more crucial one that, that, we, that we should look at is Luke chapter 16. You should turn there. Luke chapter 16 helps us to, uh, to see that Sheol or Hades was the place of both the righteous and the unrighteous saints that they went to before the death and resurrection of Christ. But that there's two different parts of that separated by a great chasm. Uh, sometimes people call uh, the upper part, or they call the, the part where the righteous went to his upper Sheol and the, the part where the wicked go to his lower Sheol. And, and that's, that's drawn from Luke 16 here. In Luke 16, it says that there was a rich man, verse 19, who was clothed in purple and fine linen and who feasted sumptuously every day. And at, the gate, at his gate was laid a poor man named Lazarus, covered with sores, who desired to be fed with what fell from the rich man's table. It says, moreover, even the dogs came and licked his sores. The poor man died and was carried by the angels to Abraham's side or Abraham's bosom. The rich man also died and was buried and in Hades, being in torment, he lifted up his eyes and saw Abraham far off and Lazarus at his side. And so notice he's lifting up the eyes and seeing upwards. Uh, and so there, there's, there's Abraham and there's um, Lazarus there with him. And uh, the, the rich man who is wicked is in torment. And the Lazarus who is with Abraham is in comfort. Verse 24, it says, he called out, Father Abraham, have mercy on me and send Lazarus to dip the end of his finger in water and cool my tongue for I am in anguish in this flame. But Abraham said, child, remember that in your lifetime you received your good things and Lazarus in like manner bad things, but now he is comforted here and you are in, in anguish. And besides all this between us and you, a great chasm has been fixed in order that those who would pass from here to you may not be able and no one may, none may cross from there to us. And he said, then I beg you, Father, send him to my father's house for I have five brothers so that he may warn them lest they also come into this place of torment. And he said, no, Father. And he said, no, excuse me, but Abraham said, they have Moses and the prophets. Let them hear them. And he said, no, Father Abraham, but if someone goes from the dead, they will repent. And he said to them, if they do not hear Moses and the prophets, neither will they be convinced if someone should rise from the dead. And so this gives us a, a situation that seems to be normative of the saints in the, the, the Old Testament before the death and resurrection of Christ. They both go to Hades, but they're not in the same part of Hades. And one part of that is comfort and waiting with Abraham until the time when Christ would descend and take them up to his father's right hand. And the other part of Hades is a part of, of torment. It's not the lake of fire. It's not Gehenna. It's not hell as in the final destiny of people, but the wicked are, are imprisoned and tormented in Hades until the day of the final judgment, until the day of the great white throne judgment, which you could read about in Revelation chapter 20. We see in Revelation chapter 20 that the, says that in Revelation chapter 20, that the sea gave up the dead that were in them. 
and death and Hades gave up the dead that were in them, and they were judged, each one of them according to what they had done. Then death and Hades were thrown into the lake of fire. This is the second death, the lake of fire. And if anyone's name was not found written in the book of life, he was thrown into the lake of fire. Now, when I say the word hell, what do you think of? You probably think of the lake of fire, correct? And so this should hopefully clear up for some of you when you've heard in the Apostles' Creed, when it says that Christ descended into hell, the early English word for hell just spoke of realm of the dead. It wasn't as specific as how we tend to use hell today. And so we need to be abundantly clear. When we say that Jesus went into Hades, we are not saying he went into hell, i.e. the lake of fire. We are not saying that there was anything more that Christ had to suffer that he didn't suffer on the cross. When he bore our penalty on that tree, when he took the wrath of God on him on the cross and, and then said, it is finished. He paid the full penalty there. Now, some people have made the mistake. Some people have gone in the direction, oh, Christ went to hell and he, he, he you know, suffered in hell. Hell no <laughs> to that. He didn't do that. <laughs> he paid for it all on the cross. If that offended anyone, ask your forgiveness. <laughs> but he did not go to Gehenna. He went to Hades and he crushed Hades. He defeated death. He conquered Satan. He rose. He broke free. And he ascended into heaven. He went to the right hand of God. And so you and I, when we die, where do we go? If we've put our faith in Christ, and that's all it takes. If we put our faith in Christ, that's all it takes. Put your faith in Christ, and when you die, you don't go to Hades. You don't wait in Hades to eventually be raised and encounter the great white throne judgment and then thrown into the lake of fire. But by faith alone, by God's grace alone, through the work that Christ did on the cross alone, you and I, when we die, we will be with him. To depart from the body is to be present with the Lord. Paul says, comfort each other with these things, for we will be with him always. So where Christ went, that's where you will go if you have faith in him. And so the Apostles' Creed, a very early historic creed that speaks about Christ descending into Hades, or as our English used to say, hell, which we can help people understand the difference of what's being said there now, since we are informed with that. We should hold on to that. We shouldn't get rid of that. We should be happy to confess that. We believe in God, the Father Almighty, maker of heaven and earth, and in Jesus Christ, his only son, our Lord, who was conceived by the Virgin Mary, conceived of the Holy Spirit, born of the Virgin Mary, suffered under Pontius Pilate, was crucified, died, and was buried. He descended into Hades, and on the third day, he rose again from the dead. <laughs> he seated at the right hand of God the Father and will come again to judge the living and the dead. That is the, the, that is the creed. We believe in the Holy Spirit, the Holy Catholic Church. By the way, Catholic just means universal there. Doesn't mean the Roman Catholic Church. We believe in the Holy Spirit, the Holy Catholic Church. Uh, oh man, uh, the forgiveness of sins, the resurrection of the dead and the life eternal. I might've butchered it a little bit. <laughs> but I didn't butcher the descent into Hades, okay? Uh, so make sure you don't either. <laughs> what, a, what, a, what a Lord. 
Look what he has done for us. This is the context of spiritual gifts. He descended and then he ascended and he shares and showers his grace upon us as the victorious conquering king. These are gifts of war that we are to enjoy, that we are to labor with humbly and in unity together for the maturity of the body of Christ. Charles Hill writes, Christ descended into Hades so that you and I would not have to. Christ descended to Hades so that we might ascend to heaven. Christ entered the realm of death, the realm of the strong enemy, and came away with, the, with his keys. The keys of death and Hades are now in our Savior's hands. And God his Father exalted him to his right hand and gave him another key, the key of David, the key to the heavenly Jerusalem. He opens and no one will shut. He opens and no one will, uh, what he shuts, no one can open. And praise to him. As the hymn says, for he hath opened the door and man is blessed forevermore. All praise and honor and glory to the lamb who has conquered. Blessed are the dead who die in the Lord from now on, Revelation 14, 13. And blessed are we here and now who even who have this hope now in our fellowship with our Savior, which is stronger than death. Thanks be to God. Amen. <sighs> praise be to God. Is there one more worthy? Is there one more qualified? Is there one who, is there anyone else who could do what Christ did? He conquered all his enemies. He was totally victorious. He ascended into heaven with a triumphant procession, and he celebrates with us by pouring out gifts and spirit, his uh, gifts of the spirit to us to empower us to build up his church because he is building his church. May we do so with humility and love to build each other up to the full maturity of the stature of Christ. Father, thank you for your son. Thank you for his incarnation. Thank you for his obedience. Thank you for his death on the cross. Thank you for his descent into Sheol. Thank you for his resurrection from the dead. Thank you for his victory over sin and death and all the principalities and powers and over the devil. Thank you for tasting death that you might conquer the one who had the power of death that is the devil. Thank you, Lord, that by faith alone that we can be forgiven, that you welcome us into your family, that we can turn and be saved and exit the prison that we were in, Lord. Thank you for your ascension. Thank you for your gifts. Thank you for your church. May we love her and build her up well. We pray in Jesus' name, amen.